Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Saturday, February 13, 2021. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, the producer of the podcast. And this evening, we're talking with Jonathan Etheridge, the Alliance Party's new national vice chair. Jonathan became our vice chair on January 10th of this year when our previous vice chair, Michael Berger, stepped down. Jonathan is a business, technology, and inclusion and diversity leader with experience in the healthcare, consumer packaged goods, and, con- and government industries. He holds an executive MBA from Davenport University and is a graduate of executive certification programs at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and University of California, Berkeley. He has over a decade of experience in policy research, development, and legislative advocacy on issues related to veterans, health care reform, technology, and privacy. He is a veteran of the United States Navy and holds uh, positions as board member or committee member of several organizations dedicated to the causes of veterans, such as Operation Homefront, the Veterans Corporate Council, and Disabled American Veterans. Prior to assuming the role of National Vice Chair of the Alliance Party, Jonathan was a state chair and regional coordinator with the Modern Whig Party, which later merged with the Alliance Party. He also held an at-large position with the National Committee of the Alliance Party. So, Jonathan Etheridge, uh, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Oh, thank you, Dan, for the, the warm welcome and the great introduction. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Good. Well, it's great to have you here. So let's get started here. The, the politics of the duopoly are clearly hitting a wall. And if 2020 is any indication of how dysfunctional our politics has become, we're clearly in trouble in this nation. Um, yet there's opportunity for the Alliance Party, and we were able to grow the party during the year despite the challenges. So before we look forward, can you briefly take us back and recap where we gained ground in 2020? Yeah, that's a great question and always happy to reflect on the past right? as the root of continuous improvement. Um, and I really see we had three crucial moments, opportunities, and challenges to face last year that determined whether we could be a nationally viable alternative to the duopoly. Uh, we had a change in leadership. We were looking at achieving nation-spanning growth of our state affiliates and running a presidential ticket, our first. The first crucial moment, the change in leadership is, is for any organization, one fraught with peril, mm-hmm. but it's an especially acute risk and moment of fragility for third parties historically. You know, many third parties were formed by a leading personality in their inner circle. Mm-hmm. It could be a charismatic leader. Uh, it, you know, the party could have been the engine of a popular candidate's campaign who spurned the major parties or formed in the wake of a popular candidate's defeat mm-hmm. from within the tent of the major parties. And so when the momentum of the campaign and the fuel provided by the leading personality runs out, you know, the rule is almost inevitably dissolution or slow decline into insignificance on the national political stage. Mm -hmm. We were very young and still are when we experienced the active political retirement of two giants in the movement in 2020, when both Jim Rex and Mike Berger announced their intent to relinquish their duties as national chair and national vice chair. Yeah, this is a moment where we were either going to flounder without these two driving influences or prove that we had the internal leadership necessary to establish continuity 
and then move beyond that survival to thrive. And I believe we have done that, uh, at least established a continuity of leadership, the election of Darcy Richardson to national chair and myself to national vice chair. The second crucial moment was an opportunity to grow. And we have never wanted to be a one election cycle underdog story or flash in the pan political party. We've always wanted to be a permanent major party, which means building the infrastructure necessary to grow and sustain that growth in every community in every state. And because we are a state affiliate driven organization, our options for growth are really limited to either creating new state affiliates growing the ones we have organically and forming affiliation partnerships with existing state parties that share similar values and principles as us. And, and really we had incredible success across all three of those elements this year. The Alliance party created new affiliates in Kentucky, Mississippi, Nevada, North Carolina, and Rhode Island. And we also affiliated with some major established state parties, such as the Independence Party of New York, the American Delta Party of Delaware, and the Reform Party of Florida. The, the third crucial moment was our decision of whether or not to throw our hat into the ring in a presidential campaign so soon after our founding. And I have to admit that I was initially a leading voice against the idea because I knew the incredible investment of our time, energy, and resources that was going to be required to do justice to the effort. And I feared that would also require us to temporarily set aside our goals of strengthening our state organizations and achieving that organic growth that I talked about. And uh, let me tell you, I'm very glad to have been proven wrong. Uh, you know, and, and ultimately I was persuaded by conversations with folks in my community that it was worth the risk. You know, inevitably when you tell someone you're, you're with a new party or an independent candidate or third party, you know, you, you get two questions, uh, either number one or number two is what is your position on X topic or policy issue and who are you running for president? Well, we were completely unable to answer half their questions, uh, which was unacceptable. So uh, I, we got behind and aligned with the candidacy of Rocky De La Fuente and Darcy Richardson to run them as our first presidential ticket in the general. And I'm very proud to say that we managed to earn the fifth largest share of the national vote while also managing to concurrently meet our goals of state affiliate growth. So the ability to do both of those well has allowed us to enter 2021 with unprecedented progress and unparalleled momentum. That's a good, that's a good place to start then. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that. I, I also, I, I share your hesitation when we ran the president because a lot of people were asking me, who is the Alliance Party? And then, and then the second question was, who is Rocky de la Fuente? Um, and that that was a little bit problematic. But you know, I, in hindsight, I think that was good. I mean, we got what overall, I think, almost ninety thousand votes if you add up all the votes uh, nationwide, which really put us on the map. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it established us, you know, as as the fifth largest party by share of the vote, which put us within two years in kind of that same tier as the green and libertarian party. Yeah. Um, and so I, I believe, you know, in a year where third party voting was down yeah. significantly compared to 2016 for, for a number of reasons, I think the primary theme of the election being a referendum on the administration of, of president Trump, mm -hmm. um, you know, we still gained 
a, a fair share and a larger share than we expected. And, and really the opportunity and challenge before us is to continue that momentum. We mm -hmm. fully anticipate that in, in 2022, we will be at the top of the mid-majors. And by 2024, uh, the true permanent third major party that we aspire to be. Good. So let's look at 2021. Um, I, I read the, the the Alliance Party had a newsletter, and you had a very uh, a very good um, 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 uh, passage in the newsletter, and you uh, focused on having a single word. Uh, you, you identified the Alliance Party's objectives in 2021 with this word called intentionality. So can you explain that a little bit more? Can you give us your ideas on the party's intention for this new year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I want to start by giving some context as to why I frame this in the language of intention rather than priorities. You know, we, we have a multi-year strategy with smart objectives and tactical action plans and, and key performance indicators to measure and control our progress towards achieving our priorities. But there's three areas that while there are key elements of our broader strategy, there are areas where we have been passive and opportunistic and seizing in the past, rather than being intentional in creating for ourselves, which is, which is really the big strategic change from today forward. And the first area is intentionality and growth. You know, we're going to be intentional in our growth. We want to water the roots of our organization first and foremost. So developing our supporters and volunteers and officers and candidates, uh, we have implemented a three-tier framework that serves as a playbook for organic growth of our existing affiliates that allows us to measure their maturity as political organizations, but also recognize the success of the state affiliate as it moves towards being a mature and sustainable state political organization. Mm -hmm. Similarly, rather than passively wait to see what groups or existing state parties approach us about affiliation, we have a plan for exactly which states we want to create new affiliates in to support our electoral performance objectives and existing parties that we view as potential partners who share our values and principles uh, and with whom we can work together to create synergies that make us what we are as the Alliance Party as a whole greater than the sum of our parts. The second area of intentionality is electoral performance. You know, until now we've, we've again passively kind of waited for candidates to come to us with their interests and then decide whether we should offer them our nomination and support their candidacy and help them fulfill their dream of being a public servant from today forward we're going to be intentional in driving electoral performance by identifying goals for a share of representation in the u.s congress and state legislatures around the country and we're going to target precisely which races we believe we can successfully compete in and then actively recruit the candidate we want to run in that race. And, and the important thing that this allows us to do is choose the field of battle rather mm. than passively accept the opportunities, the mistakes of our opposition present to us. Okay. And the third area of intentionality is, is building a better party in order to build a bigger party. We are intentionally improving the diversity of leadership and representation in our party to reflect that of what the American people look like mm -hmm. that we want to serve. And we're being more intentional about listening, discussing, deciding, and acting in ways that strengthen the inclusion once we have that expanded diversity. 
And we're intentionally picking a, a handful of policy areas to be the leading champion and advocate on, all focused on addressing systemic issues of inequity in our political, social, and economic systems. So going back to number two right there, um, electoral performance, you talked about uh, targeting certain areas, certain states. Um, do we have a list of, of those states yet, or are we just, uh, are we? We have a general idea. So, I mean, there's mm -hmm. lots of, of tools out there that's that, that are used by all political parties to gauge kind of the competitive landscape of the the demographics and, and the, you know, the eligible voters within any district for any particular seat. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we know the states where we have existing state infrastructure, which is obviously you know, one less barrier to entry where we already have leaders and leadership teams and supporters and volunteers and donors, what, what we call our protocol states mm -hmm. within that three-tier framework. But then we have other states where we believe the demographics are favorable to us and to third-party candidates in general for a number of reasons, whether it's just the makeup of the voters in a particular district or the traditional balance and parity between the two major parties. Um, and, and positive or negative trends in, in third-party voting overall for the district. Uh, but the key thing we also need to understand and what really would be different for us is rather than just looking at states, you know, we want to look at states individually at their, at their legislatures, but mm -hmm. nationally when we, when we raise our sights to the, to the U.S. Congress, you know, there we have to say, okay, what seats do we want to go after? Where does it make the most sense for us to achieve sure. our strategy? which particular uh, candidates are, you know, have not faced significant competition. You know, there's a lot of members of Congress that are almost returned by rote. Yeah. Um, and, and where can we, where can we compete and, and make them fight for that seat? So yeah. it's, it's a number of things. And obviously I can't, can't reveal the, the secret family recipe. Sure. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, it's, there's really the, the big change, as I said, is, is that difference of saying, Hey, who wants to run versus saying, where do we want to run? And, and it's a small difference, but it, I believe it will yield mm -hmm. drastically different results. Yeah. Well, I, I, I live in Missouri, and so I've been really catching up on Missouri politics, but we have a trifecta of Republicans here. It's a supermajority in both uh, the House and the Senate in, in, in the state of Missouri. So, uh, And Missouri, as you know, is a fairly conservative state, so... And what's interesting is that the district, the, the representative district that I personally live in, as, as well as probably a couple dozen others, are uh, are going without competition in the last election. Yeah, you know, last election in my in my district, for example, a Republican was the only one on the ticket. I happen to know her, so I voted for her. But uh, that's beside the point. Do states like Missouri would that would that qualify? Do you think, in in, in a sense, I'm just sort of curious as to you know. Is it a foregone conclusion that everybody's just uh, Missouri's kind of a, a lost cause at this point until um, until we decide um, you know it might be worth pursuing? I, I I don't think so. And and quite honestly, I so I live in neighboring I don't know if it's neighboring Tennessee. Right? Yeah, I, I live neighbors. in the Nashville area, mm -hmm. and Tennessee is another one of those trifecta states that you described, where mm -hmm. every level of government is dominated by the Republican Party, yeah. and so. If I were to say and analyze how, you know, what is the validity of a affiliate organization in a trifecta state like Missouri or Tennessee look like, demographics aren't favorable mm -hmm. on that input. 
but there's different inputs we have to consider. We also have to look and say, okay, are the demographics changing? What are the institutional barriers to entry? You know, it, Missouri mm -hmm. might be a trifecta state, but it could be easier to get ballot access than a state that's not a trifecta state. So we could more quickly compete with a good candidate. That's mm -hmm. a factor that has to be considered. I see. The other thing that we have to consider is, is as we look at a national scale and we're looking, okay, what U.S. Senate and U.S. House seats do we want to target? We very well could look and say, you know what? We think there is a Republican seat in one of those states that's weak or a mm -hmm. Democratic seat in one of those states that's weak. So, again, unfortunately, I'm not as familiar with Missouri, but I have to use Tennessee as an example. Tennessee at, at the U.S. House only has two Democratic um, elected officials. Mm -hmm. And one of those is because really the government required them to create a majority minority district. That's the only reason the state mm -hmm. has two house districts that, that go to the Democrats yeah. historically. The other one in the gerrymandering after 2010 was in Nashville. And you went from a district that historically won 75% of the vote for Democrat when they gerrymandered it, they redrew the district to include very rural areas of mm -hmm. counties west of Nashville to the point now where although the Democrats have held that seat since then, mm -hmm. now they're only winning with majorities of 52 to 55 percent mm -hmm. because of who the voters are in that district. So right. I, I just bring that up as an example of, you know, you wouldn't have to get very many votes to be a spoiler in that race yeah and so that might make that seat particularly attractive from a from a strategic perspective even if in the broader scheme of things if we tiered all our states by desirability the trifecta states usually are not you know in the top one or two tiers that you want to look at yeah but at, at the same time um i'm looking at a poll that was done by gallup uh they they run this poll about every uh, two weeks, and they've been doing it since uh, 2004. And it's really interesting is this is a nationwide question that they ask in this poll. It says, in politics as of today, do you consider yourself a Republican, a Democrat, or an independent? Well, guess what? In the last poll that they just took, which concluded on February 2nd, um, for the first time, independents hit 50%. And the remaining 50% were split evenly between Republicans and Democrats. So this is, um, this, I think the timing is pretty good uh, for parties like the Alliance Party to, to begin making some inroads because there is obviously a lot of discontent out there for both the parties. Clearly, the Alliance Party has a lot to offer this nation. And, um, you know, the, the Alliance Party is one of these so-called third parties. Uh, but the concept of third parties is no longer just being whispered. Um, there's a lot of folks out there that are just saying it out loud. And, and, and there's a backdrop of, of people leaving the Republican Party, as I alluded to with that, with that uh, poll. So um, what can, getting, getting to like a soul-searching journey, what, what can the Alliance Party offer people who are on a political soul-searching journey? And what can the Alliance Party do today to put the word out and get people to look at us? Yeah, that's, that's great points and great questions. You know, I, I, I love that poll um, that they do. And I, I look at it and watch it and it, it grows and grows and grows. Um, yeah. And this is one area now where I'm, I'm glad that people are starting to say the quiet parts out loud. 
Mm-hmm. You know, political parties, elected officials and candidates are, are no different than any of their business and that they offer some form of product or service to their customers or constituents. Mm-hmm. And if the constituents don't like what they offer, they should have the freedom to express their dissatisfaction with their feet by walking away, mm-hmm. which many of these people are doing, their pocketbook by withholding or giving individual donations, and what should be the preeminent power at their disposal in a in an unrigged system, at least theoretically, is their vote at the ballot box. And so people that, that leave their political home it's, it's a bigger deal than, than I think people realize, you know, really for many people, that is a large part of your self identity mm-hmm. that you're leaving behind. And when they start that journey, they do so for a wide variety of reasons. You never know if it was a, a single kind of momentary break, you know, that straw or that one little straw that broke the camel's back over, over time. Mm-hmm. And so we believe that we are, that alternative for the majority of those who are leaving now in disgust with the extreme influences within with extreme influences within their former party. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to be careful not to try to f- flip flop and attract the disaffected of the day to day, right? Mm-hmm. Because every election is going to bring in new or renewed disaffected voters. Yeah. And so what, what we're focusing on is saying, you know, despite what's what's going on, what brought you out onto this soul searching journey, we're going to offer the same promise at all times in our ideals, our policies and our candidates. And that's that we will fight against corruption, inequity and the rigged controls, the major parties and special interests influence over our democratic institution. We will demand and offer public servants who are people of integrity and character first and foremost, because we believe that how you accomplish something is equally important as what you accomplish and character and integrity in our elected officials is necessary to create a healthy political ecosystem that ha- that is the underpinning factor that will allow us to solve the myriad issues facing our nation. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to be problem solvers who are grounded in principles. We're going to follow logic and data wherever they lead when developing policies and solutions. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to do so within the self-imposed constraints of ideological purity that our our opponents demand. Mm -hmm. And we will not be your parents' political party. And what I mean by that is we are not interested in pursuing politics for power. We are pursuing politics for purpose. So, this is where I kind of get cornered on the Alliance Party, and I might be digressing a little bit here, but the first thing that people ask me is, uh, well, uh, let's talk about some of the issues. Where do you stand on things like gun control or are you pro-life or where are you on immigration or things like that? It, one thing I like about the Alliance Party is that we are really not an issues-based party. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we're more of a behavior-based party, right? And that. That, to me, is very attractive because you talked about um, integrity and, um, and character being important attributes. These, are, uh, these really speak to uh, behavior, not to issues, correct? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, p- people are driven by passion, 
and obviously issues are, are in candidates are where the passion comes from. Um, but we have always intended to be a, a behaviors-based, principles-based organization versus, versus an issues-based organization. And, um, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's one, so that we're not held to the tyranny of the urgent or, or having to take a stand on every position, um, but also so that we don't have to set an ideological purity test for ourselves and our candidates. You know, we, we tell our candidates, you have to abide by certain principles mm -hmm. within the, the policy or the legislation that you, that you advocate for, but you have the freedom one to legislate with your own moral character and ethics in mind and to the will of your constituents in mind. You know, I always tell people having come from democratic politics that a Democrat in, in South Carolina is not the same thing as a Democrat in Northern California. No. Their constituents aren't the same. And the problem is when, when we, when we cast such a broad tent as they do to try to cover that much of the political spectrum, which is what naturally occurs in a two party system, then you really force them to say, Hey, you know, you have to agree with the Republican plank, the democratic plank 10 times out of 10. Mm -hmm. And when the people that they represent don't believe that, you know, the candidates, the candidates suffer as well as the people suffer because then they have to compromise with their vote and not get the representation that they want. So we always try to say, you know, we're not going to revolve around one single issue. We're still going to revolve around principles. We think if you get the right form of public servant in office, then the issues can be addressed. Yeah. Without that, where we stand on the issue isn't unimportant, but it's not material. We, we really need to get the right person in our state house, in our, in our U S Congress, in the white house, to make sure that, that the problems are being addressed in the right way. Yeah. So as a politician, then you can compromise on issues without compromising on your principles. So uh, let's talk about what the Alliance Party is doing today to put the word out. You know, I've mentioned before that sometimes when I talk to people, um, not sometimes, oftentimes when I talk to strangers and I talk about the Alliance Party, they ask, who, who is the Alliance Party? So... Um, what uh, what are we doing today to put the word out to, and to get people to have a look at the party? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of the same challenges that we talked about here, you know, and, and really a, a part of that challenge in messaging is because we do values and principles based messaging mm -hmm. rather than issues based messaging. And, and I believe that that principles and value based messaging can resonate with people more than day to day cacophony presented by the hot button issue. The challenge there is that messaging around values and principles is inherently done in conceptual language or abstract symbols. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that we're doing to evolve our messaging is to do so based on purpose. Our values and principles will influence how we think. It will influence how we behave, you know, that we do so in a way that is consistent with our values and that demonstrates them. Um, but what we've not done well in messaging is what we actually offer or what we actually do in order to be our purpose. And so that's going to be the first foundational change in our messaging is to keep those values and principles at the root, mm -hmm. but also change our messaging to one of action and purpose to keep us from being the best kept secret in American politics. Mm -hmm. the, the second thing we have to do is be intentional in identifying our target audience. You know, we've, we've done a lot of soul searching ourselves. We know what we stand for. We know how we want to be perceived. 
but I don't know that we've always known who we want to tell that to. And some of it is because we were still forming, we were a nascent you know, political organization that brought in many different viewpoints since we grew through mergers and partnerships rather than, you know, a kind of a unified cabal that just started this party and, and sets all the terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's easy to say, you know what, we want to spread the message to anyone and everyone, but trying to be the party that is everything to everyone leaves you standing for nothing. No. At, at, at worst and at best, you just present a, a schizophrenic persona and identity to your audience. Um, so our, our target audience you know, cannot be those people who are, are too calcified in their political self-identity to change, mm-hmm. nor can we just target disaffected Republicans or Democrats alone. Because like I alluded to earlier, every election cycle is going to bring new or renewed disaffected voters. Mm-hmm. So what, what we're trying to figure out in our messaging is, is rather than be a fast follower into the disaffected Republican or disaffected Democrat market, that creates a short-term opportunity. The Alliance party needs to continue to be driven by our values, speak in the language of passion and purpose, and be a first mover into the population of the future, that next generation eligible voter. And the third is, is to be intentional, our communication channel strategy. You know, really historically we've relied on one or two channels exclusively. Um, but now that we, we, we're kind of coalescing around this idea of we know who our audience is, what our purpose for communicating them is, the type of content we want to share in that channel, and how we're going to measure the efficacy and efficiency of our messaging efforts, our channel strategy now needs to adjust to reach that eligible voter population in the future. Because mm-hmm. the way that they communicate and consume is drastically different than who we've been limiting our messaging to by the channels and platforms we've we've chosen to use to date. Mm-hmm. You bring up a really good point, though. It is hard to talk about uh, values and principles uh, when everybody else is talking about fear, you know, fear-based uh, campaigns, you know, fear of immigrants coming in or fear of the big government taking away your guns or something like that. These are, these are fears that um, I personally believe are unfounded, but they're being used by the duopoly to uh, inspire that emotion that you talked about, that that passion that you talk about. And uh, I think, or at least maybe I hope, it's more hope than thinking, people are getting tired of that. You know, they don't want to be um, spooked all the time. You know, the, here's the boogeyman here. There's the, all kinds of boogeyman hanging around. And, you know, for 30 years, they, they've been, people have been talking about the, the NRA, whatever, been talking about government come to take your guns. But it hasn't happened yet. But it's still, it still instills fear in people and passion. And uh, speaking on a different level, though, uh, speaking about, you know, like you say, uh, principles and values, um, that's a challenge. I don't think it's an insurmountable challenge, but it is it is the right challenge to have, I believe. It is it is a worthwhile message to put out there. But in terms of tactics though, how would we do that? I mean, it, it, it we have newspaper articles, magazines, um, TV, blogs, radio, etc. Are do we have some channels that we're setting up right now to explore those uh, avenues of communication? 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking at how, you know, the, the voter of the future wants to be reached. I mean, if you look ahead, right, and, and for myself, I'm not in this for one election, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in this for my kids' political future. Mm-hmm. And and we look at the the future, I mean, it's, it's going to be dominated by millennials, people my age, and, and Gen Z. And so we have to look at what's what's different about this group. You know, what are the people that are either early in their political participation or now coming of age in the next general election cycle or two as as potential voters? And I mean, in 2020, millennials and Gen Z were 37 percent of the population. In 2028, they'll be 50 percent and over 60 by 2036. Mm -hmm. So this is a group that's diverse and better educated. I mean, the only group shrinking its share of the eligible voters between now and 2030 are non-college educated whites, mm-hmm. realistically. They're civic minded. They value community. Um, they're more pro-government than their parents or grandparents used to be. You know, according to Pew, you know, two thirds of, of that group, millennials and Gen Z, believe government should do more to solve problems. Mm-hmm. But from a media and channel strategy, they're digital natives. Yeah. 90% of millennials and Gen Z, the future voter of 2020 to 2036, report that they are either online constantly or online several times a day. So we've got to first look and say, okay, if, if print media might be outdated, but podcasts are popular. YouTube videos are popular. You know, we need to look at those types of channels. And so we have to say, okay, if digital platforms are the future of communicating with this group, where are they also at? And it, I mean, the top the top five are, are YouTube by far. If you look at that same age group that say they regularly use YouTube, mm-hmm. it's 85%. Instagram, 72%. Snapchat's right up there with 70%. Facebook's fallen to mm-hmm. 50%. And Twitter's at about 30 to 32 percent, mm-hmm. according to um, Pew, Pew's research. And so, you know, for us, it's we've only ever really communicated primarily through Facebook and Twitter and our newsletter. And so when I when I look at the audience of the future, that's not where they're going to want to be communicated to. And so right. we're going to have to figure out how do we adapt to YouTube and Instagram? You know, we need more of that, you know purpose-driven, you know, passion-invoking message mm-hmm. that stays positive and oriented in values and principles. Um, but it's also probably going to require us to get creative with with videos and podcasts and those type of things we haven't historically done before, which uh, unfortunately, um, you know, is, is also going to undoubtedly require a more charismatic spokesperson than yeah. me. So we're, we're on the search for one of those two. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that, because you mentioned that earlier, too, toward the beginning of the podcast, you know, sometimes political parties can be built around uh, a very magnetic personality. Um, I guess we saw that with Jesse Ventura to some degree or Ross Perot in the past. Um, But can we or do we have the ability at this point to attract a high profile spokesperson to not be the center of the party so much, but to advocate for the party and get that uh, get those eyes onto uh, onto the party and, and its principles and values. I absolutely think the, uh, the opportunity exists. I mean, you know, when we've, we've 
had conversations with uh, candidates, you know, former elected officials that have that have left their party that mm-hmm. are are interested in a new political home. Um, you know, we've had people who are are you know large figures in the movement, like Evan McMullen and Greg Orman, have met with us, written on our behalf, have spoken at our convention to nominate our presidential candidate. So, I mean, there are people that that kind of build that or bring that built in celebrity or, or that name, you know, brand equity with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the possibility is there. And I think it's just going to grow as, as, as more people get involved in politics, but really I, instead of trying to recruit someone, you know, mm-hmm. buy that, that high priced free agent, <laughs> essentially, yeah. you know, I would rather get a good draft class and grow those leaders f- from within our party and from within the the newer voters that are coming of political age and are interested in getting involved. Okay. Good. So um, getting back to the politics itself, uh, one of the things I always rail against in this podcast is what I would call the castle walls of the duopoly. There are a lot of roadblocks that exist for uh, the Alliance party and, and third parties in general. So, what sort of roadblocks are you seeing at this point? In, 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 I mean, obviously we have uh, we have to sign petitions, thousands, hundreds of thousands of times, uh, petitions to get on the ballot and things like that. But what are the types types of robot uh, types of um, of roadblocks are you seeing uh, for the Alliance Party at this point? Yeah, um, there's almost too many to name, mm-hmm. and everyone who doesn't want to perpetuate the status quo has their leading candidate. You know, whether it be the legislative electoral system or presidential electoral system or ballot access laws, media coverage, fairness, financial constraints, uh, the co-option and repression strategies of the major parties, the list goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think the only thing all of us who want to reform can agree on is the fact that the constraints for third parties and independent candidates are, are high. Um, for me, when I look at all those roadblocks, they really fall into two categories, sociological roadblocks or institutional roadblocks. And if, if you look at the United States and our incredible social diversity and the deep social divisions that we have, it is absurd that we only have two competitive political parties, mm-hmm. which means that while there are some sociological explanation for the high barriers to entry for third parties, a majority of them are driven by institutional barriers and I believe the foundation of those barriers are rooted in plurality voting and the spoiler vote effect, which are both built on our federal and state election system of winner take all single member districts. Yeah. Um, You know, not only does the simple majority single ballot system inherently favor the two party system as, as Duverger's law tells us, but it does create that additional psychological barrier for third party and third candidate voters in, in the spoiler effect. And you know, the spoiler effect is where voters are, are willing to vote for a candidate that has little chance of winning their district as a protest vote, right? but are unwilling to support a third candidate if they believe their vote may change the outcome of the election to guarantee the election of the candidate they least prefer. Mm-hmm. And how often do we hear the major parties and candidates use this argument? Because they know it works. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the you know, when I came of age as as someone on the tail end of of the millennials, 
you know, the first really big political election that I got involved in was was the 2000 election. And I remember, you know, a lot of the people I was passionate, you know, I was hanging out with and talking to were real passionate about about Nader. And, you know, I remember just buying hook, line and sinker that whole argument that ah, a vote for Nader is just a vote for George W. Bush, right. you know, and so then you know, thankfully people challenged me on that intellectually, which made me look into it and realize, you know, the spoiler effect is, is, uh, you know, is, is a myth that needs to go away. But um, how, how do we do that? Right. So regardless of whether we're looking at state legislatures, the U.S. Congress or the Electoral College's role in our presidential election system, I think the best way that we can ensure that voters can cast their vote in good conscience rather than strategically under the pall of the spoiler effect um, we need some form of ranked choice voting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's gaining popularity and, and we, along with others who support it have made great strides in the last two years. You know, uh, Alaska and Maine have adopted ranked choice voting for federal and state elections. Mm-hmm. Virginia just recently in 2020, uh, approved a measure allowing cities to opt in to ranked choice voting for municipals beginning in 2021. We've had several large cities, uh, San Francisco, mm-hmm. Minneapolis, St. Paul, Santa Fe, Memphis here in Tennessee have adopted mm-hmm. ranked choice voting for municipal elections, along mm-hmm. with several other cities in states as diverse as Colorado, Florida, Maryland, uh, Massachusetts, Oregon, and Utah. Yeah. So if our listeners want to help eliminate the institutional barriers limiting a fair chance for themselves as candidates or a candidate who best represents their views to be elected. I I can think of no more foundational place to start than fighting for ranked choice voting in every city, county, district, and state. If we want to end the evils of the two-party system and its enabler of plurality voting. Yeah. There's There's a big organization out there that we've interviewed several times on the podcast here called Fair Vote. Um, We've had, I think, three or four interviews with them over the past year talking extensively about ranked choice voting. I, I'm just, I'm sold on this thing. It, and I think you get to the, you, you really got to the, to the core of the problem is the fact that we have plurality voting in this country, which was started for the lack of a better idea from what I understand when the, when the original framers were working on the constitution but since then we've had uh, a lot more democracies uh, sprout up all over the world and they've taken on uh, different types of voting mechanisms, which don't tend to put you into a box of just two parties. So I think, yes, the, the plurality voting system, uh, first past the, the post, as they say, that really does compel uh, mathematically uh, convergence onto two parties. And that just is completely outlived its usefulness. You mentioned Ralph Nader, too. He was actually on our, uh, uh, about a year ago now, I think it was last February, he was on the podcast here, and he talked about the uh, 2000 election as well. Very passionate topic with him, obviously. No, I mean, if I can comment on that, you're just quick, you know, follow-up to build on that. I mean, you're right. If you look, for example, at our, our closest counterparts, European democracies, um, every one of them, that switched to a proportional representation system, mm-hmm. which they primarily did between 1900 and 1925, had since become a multi-party, a multi-party, you know, political system. Yeah. So, the key difference between us and them is the fact that we held on to plurality voting, 
which which is grossly favors a two-party system. So what can uh, what can people do? What can our listening audience do today to help the Alliance Party overcome some of these roadblocks as well as, um, I mean, there's just a whole host of things anybody can do these days to join the Alliance Party and do things. Can you kind of name some of the things people, our listening audience, can do to uh, move the needle? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the first thing that I would ask anyone to do is to reflect on what they're feeling right now about our political situation and and ask themselves one question i'm i'm you know i'm deeply dissatisfied but what am i doing about it if the answer is less than the amount you could be or nothing at all figure out what you can do and and just do it Mm -hmm. i mean there's no right way or wrong way to get involved as long as you are true to your convictions and your values when you do it. And, and everyone brings different perspectives, abilities, and passions to a cause. So obviously we love for people to, to find their own unique way to contribute with the Alliance party, you know, interact with us on social media to, to help, you know, help us amplify our voice, uh, get involved in the party as a leader, volunteer, or donor. If you have a calling for public service, consider running as our candidate in your local state or federal election. But there's myriad other things that can be done. I mean, there's so many state organizations that, you know, are, are missing a congressional district officer, someone who's just willing to get active in their own backyard with their neighbor to, to help, you know, overcome ballot access and create a party and run candidates. Or they want they need someone with web development skills or someone to run social media accounts. It doesn't it doesn't always have to be a huge contribution. Sometimes just saying, you know, I'll do something for 10 minutes a day can have a, an outsized impact mm-hmm. on, our, on our ability to, to flourish and be successful. So, you know, I would just say that whatever your new contribution is, whatever you're willing and prepared and able to do, whatever it looks like, just do it. Because ultimately, the greatest gift you can give to the Republicans and Democrats is apathy. Mm-hmm. You know, neutrality helps the oppressor, never the oppressed. Yeah. And that usually manifests itself as cynicism because the I find out, you know, I spend some time on social media and I find a lot of people want to scream at their TV or scream out on Twitter or uh, Facebook or whatever. And uh, when I get a chance, I ask these people, yeah, but what are you doing? Right. Uh, are you just yelling at the TV or are you taking some action? And I think that, you know, a lot of times people don't know what to do, right? And I think that that's part of the box that the duopoly has put us into is to say that, you know, there is this ivory tower known as the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, and we are going to dictate to you. We are the industry that's going to dictate to you, um, you know, all the issues. And people feel helpless after a while. And so it's really good to join uh, organizations. You know, I mentioned the fair vote before, but hopefully people would consider joining the Alliance Party too, because there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. Not to mention the podcast that we're talking on right now, but uh, you mentioned before YouTube. Um, I think uh, writing uh, editorials in your local paper, posting some things on your social media accounts. I mean, everything. Everything. I think, like you say, even if it's just ten minutes a day, I think everything would help. When I got involved in third-party politics was was after the 2016 election. I had been very involved 
prior mm-hmm. to that, you know, uh, run campaigns, uh, written legislation, done advocacy for different groups at the state level. But I had gotten out of it because of that cynicism mm-hmm. that you mentioned. And it was just really when I reflected, I said, you know, I am fed up with it. I've, I've, I can't sit by idly. I have to do something. And that's when I started to research. And then when I researched, I said, I think I found a group that best represents me. Mm-hmm. And I just reached out and said, Hey, what, what can I do? You know, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm passionate about. This is where I live. And it, it turned into opportunities from there and it's grown, you know, beyond any of my expectations. So, so really that, that's why I put so much emphasis on, on that question is if you're dissatisfied, what are you doing about it? Yeah. Answer that question, figure out what that one thing is and start there. Good. Good note to end on. We've been talking with Jonathan Etheridge, the Alliance Party's National Vice Chair. Jonathan, thank you for joining us this evening, and thank you for all your hard work to set the Alliance Party on track to be a national political force. Thank you, Dan, and thank you to all of our listeners, supporters, candidates, donors, volunteers, and everyone with us uh, fighting a good fight. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and would like to get involved in the Alliance Party, as we mentioned before, please see our website at www.theallianceparty.com. As we expand the party... We need your involvement. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Donations and volunteers are always welcome. If you'd like to contact us at the Alliance Party After Dark, drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. Also see our Twitter page at Alliance on Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This is Dan Schaefer, your producer for the Alliance Party After Dark this evening. And on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you, and happy Valentine's.